Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. The Athletic. And welcome to Pot on the Tyne, your go-to Newcastle United podcast, brought to you by The Athletic. Coming up on the show this week, Eddie Howe is the new head coach of Newcastle United, and we're joined by The Athletic's Ollie Kay to ask, why how now? Point taken at the Amex, did we find a sense of purpose in Brighton? And one in, one out. Another link bites the dust in our hunt for an elite sporting director, but is quickly replaced. Yes, this is Pod in the Time. My name's Taylor Payne. It's been another busy week of fun and follicks up on Tyneside. And joining me, as always, to rake over the hot coals are the Athletics' Newcastle United correspondent, Chris Woff, and our senior writer, George Culkin. George, just before yes. uh, we went on air and started recording, um, how is the manager? Uh, what? I, well, I haven't asked him yet. How, no, no, George. How? How is the Newcastle United manager? I haven't asked him yet. George. Jo- no, listen, George. Listen to what I'm saying, George. How yes. is the manager? What is your fucking problem? <laughs> I've just said twice. I haven't asked him yet. He hasn't done a press conference. I'll, ask, well, I'll make it my first question. Is that all right? Jesus Christ. It's going to be one of those weeks, isn't it? Let's move on. Chris, how the devil are you, mate? Are you feeling a bit better this week? Yes, I'm feeling a lot better, thank you. And uh, mainly because we've managed to record a podcast after something has happened, which is feels like a... <laughs> yeah. It's astonishing. That's the most astonishing thing of all. That's the, that's the miracle. Thank you, Newcastle United. Yeah, unbelievable. It just doesn't happen, does it? We always have to, to react to things a week later, <laughs> usually. But anyway, we've managed, to, uh, we've managed to jump in just as the news is broken. And uh, we're going to be uh, joined in a little bit uh, by Ollie Kay to discuss uh, the new manager. Come on, you Maggies. Then the appointment of Eddie Howe as Newcastle United head coach is now confirmed and the former Bournemouth boss signed a reported two-year deal initially and it's great news for podcast hosts who love puns, if nothing else. Uh, the circumstances in which he came in at the post with the club initially agreeing a deal with Unai Emery uh, before the Spaniard changed his mind threatened to take some of the gloss off the appointment but the mood music among fans is in the main positive and we're joined uh, by the Athletic senior football writer Ollie Kay to discuss Howe's appointment 
in a bit more depth. Ollie, how are you doing? Are you good? I'm very good. Is it, that, that's not another how terrible how pun, is it? Uh, no, I, I, <laughs> don't worry, that's <laughs> no, not going to be the last. Uh, there I, will be more. You, you, you're not going <laughs> to subject me to that. To apologise um, for that. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's. I, I'm very good. I'm very good. That's the answer. That's Excellent. Nice. Well, thank you for joining us anyway, Ollie. I know you're a very busy man and we appreciate you giving up your time. Um, Eddie Howe was at Brighton on Saturday, wasn't he? And if he, uh, if he hadn't already, I'm sure he's now realising the scale of the task ahead of him. I mean, that, that, that's, that's always the line, isn't it? When, when a new manager watches, a, watches a, a team for the first time as they're, as they're sort of about to sign the contract, it's always the size of the task ahead. And that, God, yeah, I mean, watching that first half, he was given a, yeah, well, I'm surprised he didn't disappear back up, the, you know, back down the coast to, uh, or across the coast to, to, to Bournemouth at that point. But it's, look, it is a massive task, isn't it? It's, I mean, I, I think Eddie Howe is a, a really good manager um, and, and a good appointment. But I, I think, I think my, my big question is whether, whether Newcastle are good enough to stay up um, rather than whether Eddie Howe is, rather than whether Eddie Howe is a good enough appointment. It's, it's hard it would be hard if he was coming in in the summer, but it's a lot harder after five points from eleven games and being well adrift, and also and also seeing sort of various other teams making manager changes and 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 and, and sort of upscaling. So it's going to be tough. It's going to be very tough. And Eddie Howe apparently reportedly very impressive in his interviews with the with the new owners. George, how's your what's your initial reaction to this to this appointment? I'm just pleased that there's some. I mean, I was getting to the stage where I would have welcomed Steve Bruce back. Um, Whoa, hang on now. On, Let's... dragging on for so long. <laughs> Let's be careful. <laughs> I mean, by the end, it wasn't so much a case of Eddie Howe as a case of Eddie where? No, Eddie when? Does that work as a joke as well? No. Oh. Anyway, but I'm just really, yeah, no, I'm really pleased and I am encouraged and I do think it's exciting. I think he is somebody, I mean, I've read Ollie's, Ollie's kind of written extensively about him and I've tweeted one of those uh, one of those pieces recently and there's another one as well about the about him not taking the Celtic job but when he left Bournemouth Ollie wrote about that too and you can get loads of kind of great de- detail about the way he works and the way he thinks in those I'm just sort of encouraged about the idea of having somebody who who is so hot on detail yeah. and some and I got a message actually on um on uh, Saturday night from a from a Bournemouth player who worked under Eddie Howe because I'd sort of written this sort of despairing t- tweet d- during the first half I think it was you know that there was that kind of spell spell where Bryant had the ball for about two minutes and Newcastle didn't get a touch Good, and yeah. I'd written something about this sort of lack of identity and and things like that anyway this this player came back and said look don't worry you're going to get that you're going to get that very soon which is sort of encouraging. You know, he's got ideas, he's got detail. That was one of the things, as you say in your question, Taylor, about the interview process, that he his his interview was full of detail. It was full of very, very specific ideas. I don't know what those ideas were, but about the way he wanted to work and how he wanted to implement them. And that is that is exactly what what the team and the and the squad and the, the whole club needs at this point. Absolutely. Chris, how are you feeling about Eddie Howe's initial sort of reactions? I'm positive about it as well. What I find interesting about the sort of reaction to Howe or the, the debate over the, the course of the last week is almost, be, and I know this has partly come about because there was the Uni, Unai Emery situation, which we'll get into afterwards and how that didn't happen. And, and then it was Eddie Howe itself. And I know that that's sort of in some ways seen as a different level because of, because of the win, the victories and trophies that Unai Emery has. But also 
I, I don't think it's there's anything mutually exclusive with feeling that this is a good appointment, an exciting appointment, while also having some reservations about it. And I have some reservations in the sense that given the position Newcastle are in, I think I'd have reservations about anyone coming in and trying to sort them out right now. But mm, also yeah. the, the fact that me, for me personally, the thing that needs resolving most imminently is the defensive situation. And seemingly, f- having spoken to people and looking back at Eddie Howe's body of work, the defence is not necessarily the, issue, the, the, the area of the team he would necessarily be, you'd think, would strengthen immediately. But that's not to say I don't think it's a very good appointment. I, I think that he will come in, he will, he will instill an identity, he will try and improve players, which I don't think we've seen enough at Newcastle. So yes, I, I am excited and enthused about the appointment, but with, but also with a few caveats to that. But I think I would have had that with anyone who would have taken the job. I mean, if Unai Emery had taken it, my primary issue with Unai Emery would have been, does he need his head checking for leaving the situation he's in to join Newcastle <laughs> at this moment in time? Whereas Eddie Howe, yeah. not being in a job, hasn't had a job for 18 months, uh, hasn't been at a club the size of Newcastle before. I think is it's a far more enticing prospect for someone like him. Absolutely. And um, Ollie, as Chris just alluded to there, Eddie Howe's been out of the game for a little while, but I would imagine he hasn't been sat on the couch twiddling his thumbs and uh, and playing PlayStation all that time, has he? He'll have been a busy boy. <laughs> yeah, I mean, as, as uh, there was a, a, an article written the other day about um, about what he's been doing in, the, in, his, in, in, in his time off. He went to Atletico Madrid, um, spent some time there, sort of watching and observing and um, watching observing Diego Simeone. Um, he did the same at Rio Vallecano, watching the, the, the coach there. He spent a little bit of time at Liverpool um, observing and, and, and I think maybe doing a bit of coaching at the academy. So he, he's been um, he's been sort of keen to... I mean, he, anybody who's ever spent any time with him will know he's a sort of very earnest, uh, serious... Um, driven studious type he, he's he wouldn't he wouldn't ever just sit on his hands for for whatever it's been 15 months 16 months uh, but he, he's also um i mean he has he apparently felt after bournemouth he did need to take some time off he's never really had any time off since starting in professional football at age 16 17 whatever it was he was insistent that he wanted some family time he wanted some downtime recharge the batteries etc so um I think that was important, but he has also, where possible, within lockdown restrictions, you know, done a lot of travelling and studying and, um, and and all of that kind of thing, which I'm sure will make him, um, you know, even even more full of ideas than than he was before. And his legacy from from Bournemouth. I mean, what what what's the, what sort of legacy did he leave when he left Bournemouth? An absolutely incredible legacy. I mean, it, it was it was. I mean, I, I know there's a tendency amongst some people and. and I know his predecessor manager, as, as Newcastle manager, was one of them. You know, Steve Bruce said, "Oh, the fellow that got Bournemouth relegated." And I, I can't believe that a fellow manager would, would would say that. But I mean, you you hear it on, you see it on Twitter from other clubs' fans and so on. I know you would never hear a, a bad word said about him by any Bournemouth fan because they are just in awe of the man who took over as as manager when he was, I think he was thirty or thirty-one, something like that, when they were. You know, right at the bottom of the table, they were in danger of relegation. They'd been deducted seven points, but it's by relegation I mean relegation into non-league because they were in the fourth tier at a time. And he built them up and up and up. Had that brief spell at, at, at Burnley as well, but he he took them to three promotions, um, took them into the Premier League. Where everybody, I mean, I know people will t- try and rewrite history now, but they were, you know, 
odds on to be relegated that season. Nobody, you know, I think half the people who watch the Premier League have never heard of any of their players. There were certainties to go down. He kept them up, kept them up again, kept them up again. You know, got into mid-table some te- seasons, finished ninth one season. The struck, you know, the, if you judge a manager on what he leaves, you know, the state of the club when he takes over versus the state of the club when he when he when he departs, it's one of the most amazing jobs. Um, kept them up for five years of the Premier League. They got relegated at the end of the fifth season. Unluckily, I would say, um, it's an incredible legacy and the supporters there love him and I, I don't imagine there's anything he could do to make the, the Newcastle fans love him as much as the Bournemouth fans do but uh, he will he will give it a good go and make sure that those players give it a good go. Good stuff. George, that, that R word relegation keeps getting keeps getting chucked around, doesn't it? And and with regards to Eddie Howe and his time at Bournemouth as well, it seems that a lot of people can only remember that that last season. Uh, future success can often be forged in, in failure, can't it? We think of Jurgen Klopp at Mainz and, and other managers who've struggled and then it's kind of fueled the fire uh, for them. Do you think Eddie Howe's got a bit of a point to prove here? Do you think he's got some, uh, some making up to do? Well, I mean, yes, I'm sure that managers managers would say that all the time that um, you know it's it's one of the most sort of relentless and re- restless businesses you can be in because you know however you, however well you do one weekend you've got the opportunity to to muck it up again the following the following weekend. I mean, Ollie Ollie made that point about Klopp in the piece that he you know that he wrote after after how left Bournemouth and same was true with Rafa Benitez as well that was extra Maduro wasn't it Ollie I think it was yeah 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 and um so no it can happen to you know it can it can happen to anybody and I mean I suppose one thing that I should say for for kind of absolute sort of complete honesty it is something that has been talked about amongst um amongst the ownership group and certainly some of their advisors when they were going through the interview process and it was something that um, you know, something that was a cause of concern, you know, that was a con- cause, cause of concern to some of them. Um, but, uh, you know, as, as Ollie points out, and I'm sure as Eddie, Eddie Howe would point out, there were, you know, he managed to keep Bournemouth up uh, for four of those seasons. And really, that is a fairly miraculous uh, thing when you when you look at the size of the size and stature of the of the club, but of you know it's the most it's absolutely the most imp- well the most important thing short term for Newcastle is just to win any game, but staying up is is obviously the you know the 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 massive priority this season, and so you have to take all these things all these things into account. But um, you know he's he's coming into Newcastle not as a not as someone jaded by what happened at Bournemouth, but uh, full of ideas and and clearly sort of full of um, full of full of plans for what he could, he could do with the the squad and you know with that sort of sense of positivity which is what which is what they're crying on crying out for I mean we'll, we'll come on and talk about Brian but they just need they need they need ideas they they need pointing in a certain direction and they just need some certainty and I do think he'll provide those things but. I mean, it's a risk. It is also a risk for him because they're in a tough, 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 tough position. Chris, Eddie Howe now, Callum Wilson, Ryan Fraser, Matt Ritchie. Newcastle are essentially Bournemouth now, aren't they? That's how it's, that's how it's turned out. <laughs> <laughs> well, th- th- that is an interesting link that there is there. And I do think that it's important, certainly from the point of view of someone like Ryan Fraser, who at Newcastle so far has 
well, he's, he's been a complete failure so far for perfectly honest. We've barely seen him. And we have, when we have seen him, he's, I mean, this season he's been playing in midfield. He's had a lot of injuries. He's been quite unsettled. And his time with Eddie Howe at Bournemouth ended in controversy as well. He obviously refused to play at Bournemouth for the last few months. And when Bournemouth ended up going down, part of, well, at least partly, they were affected further by the fact that uh, Ryan Fraser was no longer part of their first team squad post-lockdown. And then they also had a situation with Callum Wilson, where he'd had too many injuries and he didn't really score during that season. So I think that, that those players, at least those two, have a point to prove to their former manager as well. Richie left earlier. He left when Newcastle were relegated in 2016. He'd only been in the season, in the Premier League for a year with Bournemouth at that stage. He is very experienced now. I still think he has. Um, he can drive Newcastle forward. He can be an important voice in the dressing room. But really getting more out of that Fraser-Wilson relationship or getting anything out of that Fraser-Wilson relationship could be huge to Newcastle's chances this year because I think it was 2016-17 when the two that combined uh, for du- double-figure goals and w- one of the most potent uh, partnerships in the Premier League. That's what Newcastle need because not only is their defence an issue, they aren't, they're scoring goals, but they're not scoring enough goals and they need to create more chances. And so I, I do think that that familiarity is important for everyone. One other very quick point about that, Chris, is that the three former Bournemouth players, that is also something that has been spoken about amongst the owners too. And albeit Fraser didn't play at Brighton at the weekend, he did play in the two previous uh, matches under Graham Jones, as did Wilson and Ritchie. And so you're talking about, you know, you're talking about more than a quarter of the team there and they will be hugely important. I mean, obviously, particularly Callum Wilson, but they will be hugely important moving forward. So that has been part of, I'm not saying that's the reason that they've ended up signing Eddie Howe, but that has definitely been part of the thought process that three players who should be absolutely pivotal um, to the team are people who have worked with Howe, are familiar with his methods, and in someone like Matt Ritchie, you, you know, you've got someone who talks about him as a miracle worker. Ritchie to Bournemouth? Don't think so. We'll bring Bournemouth to Ritchie. <laughs> Listeners, we've got a very small favour to ask. We want to make sure we're making the very best football podcasts out there, so we need to know what you like and what we can do better. We've prepared a survey over at theathleticsurvey.smsinc.co.uk and if you complete it, you'll be entered into a prize draw to win one of three £100 Amazon shopping pouches. Now, we're only after the feedback from UK listeners at this stage and you can only win those Amazon shopping vouchers if you live in England, Scotland, Wales or Northern Ireland. So if that applies to you, then please head on over to theathleticsurvey.smsinc.co.uk That's theathleticsurvey.smsinc.co.uk Thanks. Ollie, there are a few Newcastle fans who are not entirely convinced by this appointment. They were, you know, I think the idea that Unai Emery was the name on everyone's lips for a little while and people started to get excited about that, his calibre and, and, and the trophies and everything that he came with. Um, you know, there's a little bit of negativity around Eddie Howe with regards to the relegation, his time with Burnley, etc. Um, a lot of fans think he spent an awful lot of money at Bournemouth without, you know, with not too many successes in the transfer market. Are any of those concerns warranted, do you think? I would say, I mean, I've I've said this on on Twitter before, and I've said it in articles before, but I, I I find it staggering that he's he's portrayed in some quarters as somebody who, you know, his, that his recruitment is dodgy, or, or that or that he doesn't know a player, or something like that. That seems to come down to to two signings that people always trot out, which is Dominic Solanke signed for Liverpool, which, for, for what I was told, was for you know, less than the um, you know in terms of the guaranteed 
guaranteed down payment, etc., less than the, the, the frequently cited fee. And the other one is, is Jordan Ive, the same, again, again for Liverpool. I don't know exactly what the fee was, but um, that one didn't. That one really didn't work out, Jordan Ive. But he had, he's had mental health issues, which he's spoken about. I, I don't think. I don't think you can say that Jordan Ive, who had played forty odd times for Liverpool that season and and was you know was high, highly rated by Jurgen Klopp and so on. I don't think you can say that that was a mad, you know, a completely mad signing or anything like that. It, it was it was an investment in potential, and that was what he was required to do at Bournemouth because they couldn't, buy, you know. They couldn't buy at the top end or even the middle end of the, uh, the the transfer market. So all these sort of 15, 20 million pound signings that they made were investing in potential. Dominic Solanke didn't hit the ground running in the Premier League at all, but he's now scoring. Go- he's at 23, I think now, and he's he's scoring goals in the in the championship and will be a good Premier League striker. Dan Juma, who who they signed from Bruges for about 16 million, is now playing brilliantly for Villarreal in the Champions League. So he, he's one who always got sort of dismissed as a waste of money because people don't watch, you know, people don't watch the Championship or don't watch La Liga. But, but he, you know, he's, he's doing brilliantly at Villarreal. Um, Nathan Ake was signed for, I don't know, 15, 20 million pounds, sold on to Manchester City for 40 million. Aaron Ramsdale, now at Arsenal via Sheffield United. So there are all these success stories, as well as the ones that were, Bought like Callum Wilson and Matt Ritchie when they were further down the league. I think his 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 recruitment at Bournemouth and for Burnley, where he signed people like Ben Meek, Aaron Trippier, Danny Ings. I think his recruitment is as good as anybody's. Um, you know, certainly in terms of clubs that size. Uh, you know, I'm sure his his recruitment over the last ten years would be better than Newcastle's. Never mind, oh, you know, absolutely. Norwich's or anybody else's. It, it's it's. <laughs> The idea that people are worried about his recruitment, I don't think makes any sense. I think you could be you could be worried about the size of the task. You could be worried about the size of the scrutiny and the pressure at a club like Newcastle in this situation. Um, but I wouldn't worry about the transfers at all. I'd be I'd be relieved that they're that, you know it's somebody who's renowned for going after young, hungry players who want to improve and then improving them. Well, this is it. I mean, show me a manager who hasn't signed a couple of duds in their time. I mean, you know, just show me one. There isn't one. Yeah, yeah. Every single manager out there has at some point spent too much money on a player who hasn't achieved or hasn't met the met the expectations. Look at Rafa Benitez. He's, he, as well, you know, absolutely worshipped by Newcastle fans and he spent an awful lot of money on players who who didn't come up with the standard. So it's to be expected. Um, George, with uh, with all that in mind, talking about recruitment, um, Craig B on the real-time, uh, real-time feed on the Athletic app has asked, does Howe expect to be working with the director of football or is the idea that he will drive recruitment too? Well, he is head coach, isn't he? So um, so I think that gives some sort of... Um, I think that gives some kind of inkling into what's to follow. We know that they're looking at... At that sort of thing at the moment that they're compiling reports on sporting directors technical directors directors of football that sort of thing i mean and that is the model i would expect them to go down in one way shape or in one way shape or form i mean interestingly you mentioned you know you mentioned benitez in the in the previous uh previous bit and you and you are right a lot of the time though um in Rafa's defence, he was signing players he felt he had no choice to bring of in. Of course, yeah. Really, really as a body. I mean, someone like Javier Manquillo, who's actually turned out to be a good, you know, a good and valuable member of the squad, was something like his 95th choice at that point. And because the club moved so slowly and because there was such a logjam in terms of making decisions, 
Um, he was he ended up getting players that he didn't particularly want, but sort of had to get. And that can't happen anymore. That sort of stuff has got to has got to change. There's got to be a joined up uh, mechanism within the club that is so important. And I mean, again, this is a slight slight um, deviation from that question but you know one of the things we've seen in the last w- four weeks is how long it's taken decisions to be to for the uh, to be made by the new ownership that can't be allowed to carry on by the time January comes around they've got to be moving quickly and moving efficiently and you know those all those relationships are really really important but no I think I think it'll be that sort of model they're still at the moment at the state at the stages of working out what they want it to be. Ollie, just before we go and wrap this section up, Chris, I know you're still there, mate. I'm coming back to you in a moment, but I just want to get Ollie's uh, Ollie's feelings on this question from Meg T uh, on the on the real time feed, and she said, uh, "I know that Bournemouth was famous or well known for recruiting a specific type of player. How does our squad compare to the archetypal Eddie Howe player? And are there any players that you expect to struggle to adapt to his style of play? Uh, how will he need to adapt the tactics he used at Bournemouth to get the best out of our squad?" I find this really interesting, and I, 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 looking at the squad here, um, I mean, I, I don't know whether I'm speaking out of turn, but I think it's a really mediocre squad. I don't think it's comparable yeah, to yeah. the Newcastle squad of, of, you know, a decade ago I'm with Piotr. And no, no, no. But I, 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 I think there'd be. I think there was a feeling when Steve Bruce was there, and when Steve Bruce left, that. Oh, Whoever's going to come in is going to get loads more. I think Eddie Howe will get more. I've no doubt he'll get more out of them. But I look at it and it's 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 really average in in places. He's someone. He's someone who. Um, I mean, you can look at Sam Maximan and, and, and Wilson and and say that they're they're players that quality players who who will step up. But I I don't see it being a, a squad that's sort of made to play Eddie Howe's way. So I think he's going to have to do a lot in the. In the transfer market, I mean, we know Ryan, Ryan Fraser was played under him, and Matt Ritchie played under him. But, but you know, in Matt Ritchie's case, that was quite a few years ago, five years ago. He's getting on a bit now, thirty-two. It's to me, it's going to be a case of him going there and trying to work them like dogs, basically, for the next six weeks, and trying and trying to and trying to see who who can play the way he wants to play, because sometimes players. You know, sometimes players surprise managers um, when it's. I, I would look at someone like Joe Willock, who's who's obviously young and talented and and hardworking and wants to wants to improve, and say that I could imagine him really warming to the task and and rising to the challenge. I, could, I you know I I don't know about you know someone like John Joe Shelby, who's always, who's clearly a very good, technically good midfielder, but will he have the you know the, the speed, the intelligence to play? The way Eddie Howe wants, I, I don't know. It, it's really it, it, it's, it's, it's fascinating it's, that though. It's yeah, it's fascinating that you mentioned Willock, and of course, you know he was sort of he was the only person that the club brought in in the summer. But then, you know they used up their entire transfer budget on him, and according to Steve Bruce, more than that, he hasn't even been starting matches. I mean, that's the you know that is the sort of really terrible thing about it that they sign this player he does have energy he didn't have much of a pre-season we have to sort of acknowledge that mm, they don't yeah. know what to do with him you know they don't know what to do with him and he comes on and you're not sure what position he's supposed to be playing you look at someone like Jamal Lewis who arrived uh, the summer before with supposedly after Liverpool had been chasing him a really talented young exciting left back can't get in the team just 
is cannot get in the team. And so there is no doubt that he's regressed because he's not playing. I mean, he's not playing. What was the plan for him? I'm really sort of, I actually am excited about seeing what Eddie Howe could do with those two in particular. And then somebody like Sean, you know, you look at someone like Sean Longstaff, who has been playing, but has not touched uh, the heights he admittedly only very briefly showed under Benitez, the last, particularly the last sort of six six months of Benitez's time, that, you know, again, supposedly had Manchester United interested in sniffing around. He's nothing like that player. He's in the last few months of his contract now, but can he find something there? Can he get a spark there? This is this is one of the really annoying things about the club over the last sort of year, couple of years. You've got all these players, many of them playing in their wrong positions. Someone like Isaac Hayden, I was going about Isaac, but there have been games where he's had to fill three positions in the same match, and it's fine. Okay, you, he wouldn't ever complain about that. You know, he's he'll do what he has to do for the team. But it's not fair. I mean, he's still someone young enough to get better. And he should have, you know, he should have one settled position, whether that's number six or whatever it is. This is your position. Get better at it and, you know, do things like that. I mean, it needs a proper manager like that to get hold of it and start making players better because there is there is some talent there. Sorry. And this is a kind of it's a small rant. But one one thing that I found fascinating about Saturday was that there were six players who played with Newcastle in the championship. And eight of those of the of the starting lineup had played under Benitez. Now, in some ways, I like that story. And of course, one of the great things that Eddie Howe did at Bournemouth was bring players with him. You know, famously players like Steve Cook, who was, you know, fabulous centre half and did really well in the Premier League for them. And so I'm not having I'm not that's not me having a go at those players either because I love the fact that they're still there and that in in some ways and that they've shown. They show spirit and they do care. They honestly, they they do care. I know that, and I kind of love that about them. But it's also a club that is not developing and is not moving forward and hasn't moved forward. And I think Brighton had maybe three players in their starting at eleven who were in the championship, but they're just not recognisable from the team they were then. You know. And anyway, I want you know, it's it's about time Newcastle had a manager who improved players. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think we can all get on board with that. Well, let's uh, let's wrap things up there. Ollie, thank you so much for your time and for joining us. It's been a fascinating discussion. And uh, we shall be back in just a moment after these messages. This episode is supported by Season 3 of FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League Two after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the city's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher division. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenges and rise again into League One? FX is welcome to Wrexham. Premieres May 2nd on FX. Stream on Hulu. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card.
So, as we've been told on several occasions, Chris's ailing body meant that George had to do the South Coast trek again, uh, along with just over 3,000. (laughs) It's not what, sorry? It's not funny. Uh, along with just over 3,000 Newcastle fans. Uh, but this time he has got a few positives at report. Uh, and despite conceding a penalty just before half-time, Newcastle left the Amex Arena with a point. But it could easily have been all three, couldn't it, Chris? That was so close. They nearly won it in the last couple of minutes with that Callum Wilson chance and the, the swine of a goalkeeper tripped him over. He did. Uh, and I still am baffled as to why the referee thought that it wasn't... A foul to begin with, and what? Because either, because why would it, well, he fall exa- over? Well, exactly, you would have had to, either have had to have just genuinely fallen over, which would would have been quite dramatic in itself and quite frustrating for for a striker of that potency to have done that. Or he would have been fouled because he cleaned through on goal in the eighty seventh minute or whatever it was. Why would he? Why would he go down? So that was baffling. But what I what I wanted to highlight, which I think has been overlooked a little bit, was just how good a ball it was from Joe Linton. It was absolutely superb. Oh, it was a beaut, it was, wasn't it? Because he, because the the son, the savior. <laughs> <laughs> oh, steady on now. It was a ping though. It was an absolute. Oh, it was ping. because the body position he's sort of in as well, and the fact that he's got he's got a couple of players around him, and, and to, to manage to get the ball, it was absolutely it was it was just timed to perfection. And then Wilson's touch takes him around uh, Sanchez, who yes uh, sticks out his, his foot and then kicks one of Wilson's feet onto his other. And then stops it, but, but yeah, it, for, for Newcastle even be in that position, given what happened in the first half, was uh, was a shock. <laughs> Astonishing. But that's but that's it's great. It's a great point you make about Jelinton. I should have mentioned him. I think I did mention him in what I wrote actually. But um, you know, he's another one, isn't he? I mean, you know, he's he's another one that's on the bench. He's another one that there's no kind of great idea for. Perhaps Eddie Howe comes in, has a look at him, and thinks, okay, well, yeah, this is this is what we'll do. I mean, I'm not saying he will, but. Um, you know, perhaps there's a resolution to to the sort of the big Jalinton problem, possibly uh, at hand. I mean, it's you know. I mean, it is it is that it's that ever ever hanging around question, isn't it? What are we going to do with him? Um, the initial stages, though, George. You know, Graham Jones repeated the strategy of oh. hanging in there as long as possible and playing anti football and and waiting for something to happen. Um, it was it was pretty turgid stuff, wasn't it? In that first half, I said on Twitter it was a bit like watching a a non league team. Uh, trying to hang on against the Premier League big boys oh, in an FA worse. Cup tie—that's what it, it felt like. Worse. But I, in fact, it yeah. was worse than that, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah, it was. It was embarrassing. Yeah, Chris. Chris was watching. He was sending me kind of stats as we were going along. But there was that. There was that awful, awful spell. I think it was about thirty-five minutes in when um, Brighton fans were doing olays. Olays, yeah, Jesus. They had forty-six touches of the ball. Chris went back and counted them up without Newcastle touching it. And there was a five-minute spell where they had ninety-six percent possession, and it was cringing. Honestly, it was it was. You just sort of. I felt embarrassed just being there, you know, and sort of vaguely re- representing, uh, you know, Newcastle. And Newcastle fans responded with attack, 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 and you know, it's just that sort of lament. I mean, I know that's not the most. Um, it's not the most sort of uh, outrageously sort of offensive chant or, or whatever, but it's just sort of you know it's just it was horrific. But I th- I think it's one of those games where it feels different in retrospect. I mean, at the time that was awful, but I do think that has been his plan. I do think that's been his plan from the start. Really, has been to do this. Everybody back behind the ball, and 
and stay in 65 minutes tends to be what it looks like yeah and it's i mean and then change yeah and that 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 moment when they suddenly pressed brighton didn't know what to do and it actually no they lost the ball they made so many mistakes when we did it It yeah and so i think the the natural response to that is to say well why you know why didn't we do that from the start and the answer to that i think and i think probably accurately is to say well newcastle couldn't wouldn't be able to do that for 90 minutes they could do that for a five minute spell and come back off again and i and or you know there are all sorts of kind of questions moving forward um and you know one of them is about st maximan how you you know how you press with someone who doesn't want to run around like that and you know he he gives he gives the team other things but in retrospect i i i did come away feeling positive because of the way the game ended and it, actually there was something you know it felt better afterwards but my god that first half that was absolutely as bad as that was as bad as eye burningly horrifically awful as anything we've seen <laughs> George, you and I talked terrible. about this earlier, though, and I, I, I don't, I don't fully agree with you on this. I, I, I don't care what you think. I, I, Why, I, when, <laughs> do you, when do you get this into your head? I'm interested in my opinion, Chris. I'm not interested. In, I'm vaguely oh, interested Chris. in Taylor's. Your, yours is just absolutely. Oh, I, I don't really care. But go on. Well, You've that's had a, quite right. Come on. I'm glad. I'm glad I sent you the South Coast again. Um, but, <laughs> but it, it, it's. I entirely understand that Newcastle couldn't have done that from the first minute and couldn't have done it throughout the entire game. But but those moments that you speak about in the first half, there were periods where Newcastle had 11 men within their own half. Brighton had the ball on the halfway line, passing it between their centre-backs. They had Newcastle had three centre-backs marking nobody. Loads of players in midfield, but Brighton just give it, get, not pressured at all, not rushed into doing anything. And at that stage of the game... Newcastle just didn't weren't offering an attacking threat. They weren't on the rare occasions they got the ball. Newcastle, Newcastle were actually trying to play it out from the back, but to to no real. There was no. There didn't seem to be a plan again in in terms of in possession, and and that's the problem I, I have with the way they played over the last few weeks and longer. This is this is a far longer sort of thing. But why I'm not. I don't necessarily agree with with this. This approach is the only way of, of doing it. Is it, what is the idea when they get the ball? It's like fine, do that for a while and try and contain Brighton and hope they don't score more than one, and so you're still in the game. But then when you get the ball, what are you actually going to do with it? And and again, I, I just couldn't for for sixty minutes. I couldn't see again what they were trying to do with it. I can appreciate this approach if you're playing, say, Liverpool or Man City. I can kind of understand it where that's concerned. But you know, with the greatest respect in the world to Brighton, yes, they are a decent footballing team, but you have to go and get amongst it a little bit, don't you? At least it might. This might sound a bit reductive and a bit old-fashioned, but you have to. You have to do something. You can't just do nothing. You can't be passive. And Newcastle was so deep at times that they were. They, I mean, the back four was practically in the back five. Sorry, was practically in the English Channel at one point during that first half. It was an absolute mess. We were. We were so deep. It was horrible. Um, that that penalty as well, um, Chris. Slightly contentious. Trossard goes down. Far too easily for my liking, but let's be honest, Kieran Clark's got absolutely no business dangling his leg out like that in the box, has he? No, he doesn't, and I can understand the frustrations of the VAR, and I do think it was stupid that it took that long for them to look at it and then eventually decide that it was a clear and obvious error. But in terms of the actual challenge itself, that it was a brainless challenge, and I also think as well as swiping his leg, he also dragged him back. So it, did, was, yeah. it was harsh in some ways, and it, I think it was stupid for VAR to overturn it, but equally I can't... It, it's it, It's... It, it's a consistent theme now that Newcastle have given away five penalties this season. Even if a lot of those have been given by VAR, that's 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 a pattern. That is not a one-off. That is, that is something they're doing wrong. They're conceding too many goals in general. And that's another issue of it. And I, I was 
of all of the selections over the last few weeks, I think what surprised me most is that they haven't, and I know I, I can see he's trying to get consistency in terms of what he's trying to bring from that back lane, but that that left-hand side of the defence, it was obvious that Brighton were going to target that, and they did with Tyreek Lemby, because you've got Kewen Clark, who's in no sort of form whatsoever and hasn't been throughout most of the season so far. You have Matt Ritchie, who's a converted right winger, playing as a left wing back. And then you've got Alan Maximan, who just doesn't... just. It, it, to be fair, he tried on Saturday, but you can see the defensive side of the game just does not come naturally to him. He doesn't want to do it most of the time. And so Brighton targeted that area. And I just found it strange that there wasn't at least one change in terms of on that side to move things around a little bit to try and make Newcastle a little more solid on that side. I found that very, very strange. We said, George, that it was encouraging more so in the second half where when Newcastle changed things and you know a few subs were made and stuff like that. Jalinton came on, the pressing seemed to work. And like we said at the top there, Wilson could have won it later on and, and the keeper takes one for the team. Um, it's almost like a red card isn't enough in, of, of a punishment in that situation, isn't it? Because Newcastle would have won the game. Yeah, yeah. It, I mean... You know there was you know, there was only one place that Wilson was going to go from that point, and that was to go and score. So it, it doesn't it you know yeah, but it did make it dry. I, it's I was trying to think of the last time that happened with a with a with a non keeping keeper going in goal. I do love that. It was um, it's great, isn't it? You don't see love that, it. You don't see that enough. You don't see that enough. But the the huge the huge frustration, of course, is that he wasn't. He wasn't. It wasn't tested, was he? Um, oh, Jesus, I'm still annoyed about that. Yeah, we had those five minutes of. Um, we have those five minutes of injury time. So it should, I mean, it should have been an. And to just to sort of go back uh, to rewind slightly, there was, you know, talking about sort of having a go against Brighton. I suppose the danger of that is, you know, Newcastle let in three goals in both matches last season. At least, at least they didn't do that. At least they didn't do that this time, and they got a point out of it. But that. The very sort of worrying thing is that it was one shot on target against Brighton. I think it was a couple against Chelsea and it was one against Crystal Palace. So that's four in the last three games. And that is just not enough. That is not enough to win matches. So, um, you know, Eddie Howe is going to have to find a way to... to oh God, I don't want to use balance again because it's the word that Steve Bruce used for so long. But, you know, there has to be a way of, of doing a bit of both. I mean, he's he has shored things up I do think that tactic overall sort of worked but yeah it was very very frustrating and I know that everybody 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 everywhere was waiting for that Shelby free kick to be oh, to God. be fired in and then he just like sort of lofts it aimlessly in the opposite bloody direction what was he doing I do think there's a problem in terms of that transition from if if you're if you're basically programmed to we are so passive, we are going to stop, we are not going to up the intensity here, there's no urgency about us whatsoever, to suddenly then flip towards that, as Newcastle should have done. I think it, I can see why that would be quite difficult. So there was game. this Shelby free kick, which was baffling. But then, no, but then the, the issue I had, almost had more, was later on, in, I think it was the 93rd minute or 94th minute, Jacob Murphy's at right wing back. There is no one within 25 yards of him. And he can stop the ball and then hump it upfield. But rather, what he does is he lets it roll out of play for Newcastle to then take a goal kick to try and get it upfield. And at that point, you're just thinking, just get the ball up the pitch. And there's, I don't know if he didn't receive shout to tell him he should do that, but also it's just that sort of attitude, which I don't, I think that the shift, I think that mental shift has almost gone from him to a certain degree. It's almost like we are going to be passive. This is the way we are playing. We, we can't up the intensity. And because they can't do that, they can't shift gear when all of a sudden that's exactly what they needed to do for those last five minutes. They needed to just try and create chaos. Yeah. 
that um that shelvy free kick, I'm still absolutely raging about that. I have to be honest. I know I've du- I know I've dug John Joe Shelby out a few times on this podcast over the years for for his attitude and stuff like that. But and his brainless red card against Spurs. This might be the least intelligent piece of football I've ever seen in all of my years of watching football. I don't have a clue what he was trying to do, what he's trying to achieve. I'm not allowed to repeat what I shouted at the TV when he did it because let's be honest, Ollie's bleep button isn't good enough for that. Um, it was just an absolute disgrace. And I know it's it's almost like the entire game in microcosm because you bring it down to one incident at the end. But it's Lewis Duncan goal. Put the ball in the box on his nose, make him work, put the shits up him, get people running across it, put the ball in fast and bounce it in front of him. Do anything. Get it on fucking target. If Lewis Dunk had have been allowed to place that ball himself, he couldn't have put it in a better position for himself. It was an absolute mess. A complete, a complete mess. Some, I hope, I hope he got, I hope he got torn a new one by by Graham Jones when he got back in the dressing room after that because it was an absolute shit show. I don't want to see him do that ever again. What a disgrace. It's, anyway, it, it's sorry, it's and it's it's not in, it's no, it was beautiful. I'm I'm standing up and applauding. It was, um, <laughs> it's not even about intelligence. That is it. It just should be just about instinct. It's like, all right, there's a centre half in goal now, so we've got to. You've just got to batter him. You've got to take. You've got to. You've got to get the ball. You've got to get the ball somewhere near the goal and shoot. Yeah, just shoot. shoot. What would Lauren Robert have done? He would have tried to have killed Lewis Dunk with that ball, wouldn't he? That's what he would have done. <laughs> he would have hit that ball so hard, yeah. Lewis Dunk would life would have been in danger. Oh, chipping it to the back post. Fuck Jesus. Sorry. All right. Yeah. Anyway, it's happened now. We're not getting it back, are we? <laughs> How is the Newcastle manager? I don't know, George. I haven't asked him yet. Ugh. Anyway. Oh, right. Let's move on. We've got a couple of little bits to take care of before we finish up. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard it right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer, if you ask me. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Right then, a few other small bits of admin to take care of before we say to Raw. Uh, oh, who's wrote this in the run order? This has got to be Ollie, our producer, who's written this. This is terrible wordplay, and he should be reprimanded for such he should resign a bit like elon musk we are not getting over mars oh that's awful that is is disgusting that's worse than john joe shelby and newcastle's first half performance at brighton that is i mean i'm embarrassed 
Absolutely. Uh, well, the Ajax uh, director of football has said he's staying put at the Dutch champions after being one of the names on the consortium shortlist to take a sporting director position at Newcastle. Chris, Mark over Mars. I mean, there's been a lot of chat of it the last couple of weeks, hasn't there? Yeah, well, Newcastle have been linked with, I think, every single person in the world of football <laughs> over the last course of the I've interviewed year. for it. I've, I've interviewed for the job of sporting director. <laughs> What's the first thing you'd do? Uh, naked Wednesdays. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> That just for you or everyone at the club or what? Just for me, Chris. Right, okay. Right. Right, well, on that note, um, yeah. Mark Overmars, I mean, he's done, a, he's done a very, very good job, obviously across at Ajax, and uh, produced some, they, they've produced some wonderful footballers and the, the, the team, I think they got the semi-final of the Champions League a few years ago, and he, yeah, he was heavily linked, I think, mainly by the Dutch media, to be fair. I don't know where exactly, whether that came from him or whether that came from someone at Ajax or who, who exactly that came from. But yeah, in David Ornstein's column for The Athletic uh, Monday morning, he's written that that isn't going to happen. I mean, George can say a bit more on this, but I'm pretty sure the, the sort of uh, report that has been compiled before Newcastle uh, bringing a director of football is still ongoing, so I don't think they're quite at that stage yet anyway. Yes, and obviously the other thing to mention at that point as well is that um, the former Chelsea sporting director, Michael Manalo, has also been linked linked with that. I mean, as have many others. I mean, I do think that they're at the stage where they'll be reaching out to people and sort of they're certainly asking the question, they're certainly asking the question of people around them and they're having names put to them. Um, I was sort of told that from the start that they were compiling a report on, on this and what they want the structure to look like. You would have thought that that must have been part of the discussions when they were talking to Eddie Howe. So perhaps they've come closer to uh, to sort of understanding what it is that they want. So, you know, eventually... Eventually, one of these names will be right. I don't know. I don't know who it's going to be, and I don't know exactly yet what what they want that structure to look like. But um, you know, the fact is that they've got the first name. I think in an ideal world, you would do it the other way around. You would have a sporting director. And but as you know, as as we said earlier, the key thing is is that the peop- these people can work together. They've got a sense of what each other's roles are, and that there's there's you know there's harmony moving forward. And there's an ability to to respond quickly moving forward. That's the really crucial thing. As if they take their time now, but there is people ready to go for January. That is the critical bit because that's the bit where they just can't afford any delays. Fair play. Uh, and quickly as well, uh, before we get to the end, a uh, big happy birthday to friend of the podcast, Aaron Hughes, uh, and also another uh, Newcastle United defensive alumni, Mike Williamson, uh, currently doing a pretty handy job as player manager at Gateshead, both their birthdays today. Happy birthday, chaps. Uh, Let's do quickly do what a couple of more questions, lads, before we finish up, because we've had a load in from the real-time feed, and I know we've extended our first bit talking about Eddie Howe as his appointment was announced just before we started recording, uh, but we'll try and get a couple of these questions in. Uh, Jason C., how and why uh, does the information keep getting leaked to the media? As much as we all want the latest information, it only seems to undermine the club's efforts to get things done. Uh, the Unai Emery situation being the prime example of this, George. Yes, I mean, all I'd say on that, I mean, is that, I mean, firstly, I think, generally speaking, there is a willingness on behalf of the new owners to communicate. Well, we've seen that, you know, we saw that from day one. There is a willingness to communicate more. They want to do that moving forward. You know, I think sometimes the release of information, stuff that they can't say officially, but could can say unofficially, you know, that can be important too. In their defence, I would say that um, the, the sort of original story about... 
Emery being top top of their list and someone they were going for didn't come from did not come from them directly. Um, so, you know that, that that's one thing to say. I do think then there was a kind of internally there was a misstep, and you know I wrote something about this that they've admitted that they made a mistake and they made a mess of it, and I think there were there were sort of leaks from that point, and what that did was probably alienate uh, Emery, bearing in mind it was on the day of a massive Champions League game. Yeah, I and I think that made alarm bells go out. Now I think in retrospect, if that story had come out the day afterwards, he would you know perhaps he would now be the uh, head coach of Newcastle but there was also this push uh, to get it done before Brighton part of that was because you know Graham Jones has ind- had indicated I mean as he said after the Chelsea game it needs a fresh face he told them internally that in an ideal world he would like not to be doing that at Brighton and so there was this real push to try and get it done uh, before then so they did end up tripping over their own feet Um I would also just say, though, from a wider perspective, that stuff leaks happen throughout football and always have done, always will. If you look at other clubs changing managers, there are always reports linking them to people because there are a lot of people with agendas, a lot of people wanting to try and make money out of these deals. And again, with this one, you know, one of the things that's so interesting and different about it is that you do have these three different spokes of ownership. And so they're all getting advice from different people. They're all, um, you know, reaching out to different people. There are people coming forward. I mean, I've had loads of messages, even as a journalist, saying, could I please put so-and-so in contact with Amanda Stavely or could I do this and that, you know. And it's like, well, that's not my job to do that. But, there's a, they're, you know, they've been bombarded with that. And there are loads of places where leaks can come from that aren't just the owners. That's, so that's all I'd say about that. But, yeah, they... They they got it wrong with Emery, and they they do admit that, and they say that they will improve and get better. And Chris, one last one. This is from Phil A. Uh, once a director of football or sporting director is hired, do we still expect decisions to take so long? Uh, Phil says he's slightly concerned that transfer windows under the new regime will feel like they did under the old, taking too long to land targets and ultimately missing out on them. It's a very good question, and I think it's an understandable. Uh, sort of concern to have because of how long things have seemed to happen so far uh, under the new ownership. The issue, I suppose, that was there when they inherited the club was the lack of an executive structure there beyond uh, Lee Charney, who has remained and obviously in an, on an interim basis and has been involved in some of the administrative work and some of the conversations that have taken place in terms of trying to bring in a new manager. He's been he's facilitated some of those and he's been involved in some of the background, but has not led them. Um, but in terms of if a, if a director of football, sport director, I do think once that structure is in place and that will certainly streamline things to an extent, I think having a chief executive as well, someone who is designated to make those decisions will streamline things. The, the one question I can't really answer though is going forward, how much will be delegated by the actual consortium to that? Because at the moment, obviously the the, the um, controlling partners, PIF, all major decisions have to go through PIF. Will PIF be willing to, are they going to appoint a director of football, a sporting director, whatever structure they go down, a chief executive, and give them almost a carte blanche within a certain uh, parameters to be able to do what they want, or are they still going to want every single big decision to be run by them? I don't know the answer to that question. I hope certainly when it comes to transfers, that as long as they've identified a list of of players and and, and have have decided parameters in terms of uh, exact amount of money they want to spend on them that really they would be given 
uh, the flexibility to be able to go for those because during the transfer window in particular, you cannot hang about. You have to, and given a club like the position Newcastle are in, and given the fact that everyone's going to have inflated prices now, no, some clubs aren't even going to want to deal with Newcastle. They can't hang around. They need to be quick. They need to be decisive. And so I do hope that that be, does become streamlined, but it's something we're going to have to see in time. Absolutely. Well, that's it for another week, chaps. Uh, thanks again to Ollie Kay uh, for popping in uh, and talking to us about Eddie Howe. Uh, and thanks, obviously, to, to Chris and George. It's great to hear Chris feeling a little bit brighter this week than he was last week. Uh, and, of course, thanks to all of you for listening and to our subscribers for some excellent questions. And I'm sorry we didn't get through as many of those as we wanted to this week. But, obviously, there was some quite big news got broke just before we uh before we started recording before before um, hallelujah hallelujah no more George, if you no could just me. speak to amanda stavely and make sure that happens every week from now on if they are going to announce anything just you know george you're the man you're the man for that uh just make sure i bet they do a sporting director tomorrow so this podcast tomorrow, yeah. will then start with me saying this this edition of pod on the time was <laughs> recorded before the appointment of a either Sponsored actually look wait DeLorean. wait let, let let me just do this now right and ollie can then just change whichever bit um is right yeah, okay good, let me go. let me just do this okay right hello and welcome to pod on the time this edition was really annoyingly recorded before newcastle appointed either a sporting director B, Director of Football, C, Technical Director, probably all the same thing, D, Head uh, Chef, E, Bottle Washer, F, F. <laughs> John Joe Shelby, F. Brain Locator. Right. Um, <laughs> so hopefully this covers all eventualities and uh, we will not have to record anything else. Fabulous. Thanks for that, George. You've really... Uh... You've really got in ahead of the game there. Well done. Uh, plenty more Eddie Howe chat next week, of course. And until then, from everyone at Pod on the Time, it's a hearty goodbye. Athletic. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code The Athletic, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager.